Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This is the latest episode of the new Ask Altucher sub-series, and I'm joined on this podcast by my good friend and fellow podcaster, Jordan Harbinger. I brought him on because I felt he would be really good at answering this question. And the questioner is Steve Blackburn, and he writes, the question is basically, I'll summarize it, since you've always mentioned we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with, how do I develop relationships with more successful people so that I surround myself with a better five people. I answer this question and then I bring Jordan Harbinger onto the show who provides a really great answer as well. Let's go for it. This isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. The reason, Jordan, we were thinking of you for this to come on and share your experiences is you're really good. And I think I'm really bad at mm. asking for help. <laughs> like you are when, the worst at asking for help, but you, you, you do don't even, you're so bad at asking for help that it's like a cliche. It's almost like a pathology with you sometimes. I feel like it's true. Like I, I remember when you, um, you know, you were starting the Jordan Harbinger show after your old show. Catastrophe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you were really good and sincere about, look, this is what happened to me. Yeah. Really appreciate it. If you had me on the show and I'm just starting from scratch and I want to rebuild. I mean, and you get this, I got this sense. This is like, this was a disaster for you. It was, you're yeah. You starting the show from scratch and you've gone past where you were before. Yeah. And I was so impressed because it's really hard for for one thing to grow a podcast, even if you're already big and you were starting from scratch, but just by asking for help from people and people really responded like they did. Did anyone not respond or did anyone disappoint you? Yes, one. But the person who did that, it shouldn't be a huge surprise. And I'll tell you off air because it's like somebody who people's name would be recognized and that's bad juju to do that. But it's the exception that proves the rule because I probably asked like 140 people for help. And I don't mean like my parents or cousins. I mean 140, you know, online people with platforms that could help me rebuild. And only one out of that, it was maybe one or two. And I think one of them was like, not right now, but maybe later because of reasons. And then they did fulfill that thing later. And then the other one was just like, no, you're not famous anymore. So I don't get any, I can't get anything from you. But uh, when I tell you who it is, you'll be like, oh, that totally makes sense. Because it's like, that's the person's like whole life is like, what can I get from you? And, and star fucking, if I can say that on your show. So, but the fact that 138 slash 139 people out of 140 were like, when, I mean, I call, do you remember, you know, Pat Flynn, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Great guy. I called Pat Flynn and I was like, oh, this thing happened to me. And he goes, all right, I'm mailing this out to my list tomorrow. And I was like, wow, I bet you can't even buy that with money to get mailed out to Pat Flynn's list of a hundred, you know, you, I'm sure you could pay him like 50 grand and he'd mail something out to his list, but to just call him and like whine on his shoulder and have him mail it out to his list the next day, it's like, that's pretty damn generous. I don't know many people that would do that. Or that's what I thought yeah. at the time, but then yeah. I reached out to like you and a, a, you know, a lot of other folks that could have just been like, nah. And everyone said, yes, 
Everyone. It was it was awesome. It was really something. I never it was it was the best developing relationships with people and not trying to get something out of them and just keeping in touch with them for years was the single best insurance policy that money could never buy. It's very true. Like the keeping in touch is so important. And it's so I think that's part yeah. of my problem is that like I always think I have good friends, I have a lot, a lot of relationships out there. The podcast has helped me expand my set of relationships, but it's hard for me to keep in touch. And it's hard for me to just drop a line and just say, hey, how's it going? It's And then it's not that I don't care. It's just that there's always lots of things going on and I well, feel awkward I about it too. You're an out of sight, out of mind kind of guy, first of all, if, if my read on you is correct. So there's that. But also, you, we've talked about this at your house. Like, it's awkward for you because you overthink stuff. And you and I have the same thing. And I, I don't want to put you on blast. So I'll put myself on blast because I know we have the same thing. So you get an important email and you're like, oh, that's important. I don't want to answer it right now. I need to like have mental space yes. to answer this. And then you see it every day. And then weeks go by and you're like, oh, man, I should answer that because I, but I still need mental space. But now the mental space you need is bigger because it's been built up and it's been sitting there. And then eventually three months goes by and you're like, I can't answer this email now. I'm going to look like an idiot because it's been 90 days or two years right. or whatever. So you you end up de- ignoring it or deleting it. And then it's then it's gone. But that's like, well, th- wait a minute. That was the show booker for Oprah. Like maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have ignored that. Yeah. No, that's happened to me quite a bit. Yeah. Exactly that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say, you know, someone is kind of building their career and, you know, and they say that you're the average of the five people you spend your time with. How do you answer that? So a lot of people try to do that by going forwards and they're going, okay, I need to hang out with five awesome people 24 seven so that I'm great. I would start the process going backwards a little bit. And what I mean by that is look at your calendar and look at all the people that you've already spent a bunch of time with in the past year or six months. And you have to say, okay, am I happy with the influence that those people are having on me? Because it's real easy to be like, if only I hung out with Jordan and and James and Bill Gates and uh, the neighbor next door who runs a dry cleaner chain, I would be so much more successful. But it's like, well, would you? Because your current best friend plays Xbox all day and smokes weed and stays, you know, wakes up at 2 p.m. and, and goes to bed at 4 a.m., you know, and your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever doesn't have a job, doesn't have a career, complains about his or her life all the time. And then your other person that you see all the time, you know, like you you have all these negative influences. I don't care if you're hanging out with Richard Branson 24-7. If your roommate is a burnout gamer stoner with no job and no career, no prospects, that's going to weigh you down way more than any sort of positive influence that maybe you think you're cultivating on the side. So cut out the negative influences first. And, you know, then at least you're starting from baseline or zero, right? There's no point in in trying to become an Olympic swimmer. If you can't even tread water, like what's, what what are you doing? You know, you got to learn how to float. So I think a lot of people make that mistake. That's really important advice. Like subtraction is more important than addition. Yeah. So like, you know, let's say I want to be a better tennis player. I'm just hypothetically saying, yeah. let's say I want to be a better tennis player and I play tennis five hours a day and study with a coach, you know, have a tennis coach and whatever. But then the, the rest of the day I'm hanging out with my gamer friends at McDonald's, you know, smoking weed or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not going to help me to add more great tennis players to my, in my life. Right. It's only going it, to, what's going to be kind of the 80, 20 of this, the, the, the 20% that's going to deliver 80% value is going to be eliminating the negative. That's, that's always more important. It, it is. And, and often it's sort of a lighter lift. Cause if you're going, Oh, I just moved into this new place or, or well, let's forget the moved thing. Okay. I want to start upgrading the people I hang out with. Okay. Well, how do you do that? If you come and meet me at some place and I find out that all the people you hang out with are sort of like burnouts and aren't going anywhere, that makes you look bad enough where I don't necessarily want to have you in my orbit, even if I think like that guy has potential. I'm like, yeah, but have you seen the crew that he hangs out with? That's not a good sign. Or he's not really, he doesn't have his own house in order. That's not a good sign. So it, it really is good to get rid. The subtraction is quite powerful in this instance. Um, and I think that that's, th- there's something to that that's really 
that gets left on the table because a lot it's easier almost to think of these like aspirational people that you want to meet and hang out with and it's a lot harder to it's harder to do the real work of moving out when your roommate is a bum or breaking up mm. with your significant other when they're dragging you down and are a hot mess and they don't want to change and they don't they've they've ignored all the hints right like that's hard work it's a lot easier to be online and be like all right i'm going to get psyched to, to go network you know, that's an easier thing to get to get into. You know, and and your answer brings up another point, which is I'm gonna call it the 25 person rule instead of the five person rule. So the 25 person rule is you're the average of the 25 people that you're that you're five people hang <laughs> right, out with. Right. I, I believe and, that's for, well, for sure we know about the network effect, right? Have you heard about like how if people you know smoke and I'm friends with you, then I'm X percent more likely to smoke even if you don't smoke kind of thing. Have you heard about this? I have heard about it. And, and there's another thing relating to jobs, which is you're more likely to get a job from the friend of a friend than from a friend. And is that just because there are way more friends of friends than there are actual friends by virtue of the fact that that's how math works, basically? <laughs> yes, that that's part of it. But it's also your friends might have a job available for you but they'll say, "Hey, I'll call, I know so and so. I'll call him on your behalf." Right. Okay, and, that makes sense. So on. So so right. so you're more, and you're you're going to be aware. Like, let's say none of your let's say you want to work at Microsoft, but none of your friends work at Microsoft. One of the people they know probably works at Microsoft. Sure. You know, out of all your friends. So and again, it's a numbers thing, but also it's just reality. You get jobs more from the friends of your friends. So if the friends of your friends are all working at McDonald's instead of Microsoft. No offense to people working at McDonald's. It's a great restaurant, the world's most popular restaurant next mm -hmm. to Subway. You're more likely to get a job at McDonald's. Yeah, this this actually makes perfect sense to me. I, I hadn't necessarily heard that, but of course, that's the numbers game and how it works. The problem is that people only want to make those connections when they need something. And it's not because they're all selfish pricks. You know, that's not, it's easy to be like, hey, if you're only asking for something when you need it, you're a bad person. And I don't want people to take, I don't want that to be the takeaway because that's not true. What's really true is most of us are really only looking for our next step because it's hard enough to manage our own life, let alone look at what other people are doing and try to like help them. It seems really difficult to do that. And a lot of times we have maybe a little bit low self-esteem in terms of like, what am I going to do to help Mark Cuban? I'm just a college student. You know, that's, that's a very common refrain. And it completely makes sense. So w of course you're only reaching out when you need something. Why else would you reach out to help someone? Okay, fine, but you're 24. What are you going to do for somebody else? So then you just don't reach out to anyone. And then when you do need something and you reach out, it's not effective because that person's like, why would I accept a cold email from some random kid looking for a job? So it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that's unfortunate is a lot of us think we don't have anything to offer. And then when we need something, we reach out because that's the only time that it makes sense for us to reach out. And that's when outreach is the least effective because I don't know about you, but I would of course much rather entertain a proposal, investing, whatever it is from somebody who I've talked to seven times over the last, I don't know, five yeah. years than somebody who shows up in my inbox and is like, I need a job and I'm desperate. Can you please help me? <laughs> you know, that's not a good pitch. What's the number of like, touch points you need to have with someone before like they feel like you're a contact. Yeah, that's that's hard to say because I think, and, and I haven't done any sort of science on this. I wonder if anyone has. I, I think there is science on there's this. I think be. it's like, there's like a magic number, like six or yeah, seven. It's good. This is going to be like an Adam Grant thing where he has a study that yeah. shows how many it, it takes. I would say, of course, though, it, it has to do with quality over quantity. You know, if somebody is tweeting at me because they liked a episode of the podcast, that's not going to be as good. And, and I thank them for that, but that's not going to be as good as me having hung out. Let's say there's 10 tweets. That's not going to be as good as the one person that I met through trusted contacts at yeah. a, an event, you know, like mastermind talks where you and I probably met for the first time. Like if I met somebody there six years ago, I might still be in touch with them, but it, it, there's a person who I've never met on Twitter who tweets at me every single week and I can't remember their name. And every time they reach out to me, I'm like, Oh, that's the guy from Twitter, but that's, that's as far as it goes. So there's, there's something to be said for the quality of outreach, um, hanging out in person, 
Trump's hanging out uh, on a conference call on Zoom, which Trump's a random email, which Trump's a random tweet. You know, there's going to be like a hierarchy of those things. So maybe it is six, but I would say it's it, the quality of the interaction is going to be something that's that's much more important. And that's one of the reasons why when people say, oh, let's let's jump on this call. I almost never really want to do that because it's not as useful and it's not scalable. But people will go, I don't understand. You don't want to jump on a conference call with a bunch of awesome people, but you flew to Mexico to hang out with one-fourth of the people that were on that call for four days. And I'm like, to me, that's an obvious win and somebody asked me why I did it, why I did that, because it's a real example. Like, how come you don't go on these calls with 40 people, but you fly to Cabo to hang out with eight of them? And the answer is because at the end of that weekend in Cabo, that four-day weekend, I'm pretty tight with all of those guys. You know, I would let them stay in my guest room and, we, you know, I could call them at a weird hour for a favor or something like that. Um, I wouldn't have any qualms asking them for their expertise or a minute of their time. But 40 people on a conference call, if somebody then calls me after that, I might go, where did we meet again? Oh, we were on a call on Friday and you and I didn't even really talk. That's a much weaker connection. That's a really good point. Like, and and it brings to mind the, the real estate saying location, location, location. Like, sure. like you mentioned the, the mastermind talks. So that's a conference where it happens once a year, a lot of great people. Uh, and it's gotten bigger and bigger every year since the start. I think we were at the initial ones or the, the initial couple ones. And I've had at least 20 or 30 people from that conference on the podcast. Like whenever sure. any of them has a book and we've met at that, it's like automatic come on the podcast. Right. It's and Jason does a good job curating it. We can talk about what that means in a second. It's funny because I don't really go to many conferences. I haven't, obviously since the pandemic, I haven't been to any, but even before that, really just those mastermind talks are like the only kind of networking kind of conference that I've, into. Yeah, I've gone to a couple of things, not a ton. Uh, one of the one of the reasons is, and, and I mentioned when I was sort of interrupting you there, that Jason, who runs Mastermind Talks, he curates really well. And that's another thing that I think people overlook. And it sort of dovetails nicely with what we were just discussing. A lot of folks will say, oh, I, I hate networking. And then I go, okay, why? And then I want to get an idea of what networking in their mind looks like. And usually it's something along the lines of, well, you find out about something on meetup.com and then you drive away all the way across LA in rush hour traffic and you try to find parking and then you park your car and you show up and there's a guy in a ill-fitting suit and he's got stale cookies and Kool-Aid and then all these people from multi-level marketing companies or financial investment companies hit you up and give you business cards and then you turn around and go home and you cry in a, at every red light because you wasted it's all that time. It's a very specific description. Like, it sounds like that I've done this. actually happened. Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah. It's, it's like oddly specific. No, I've done that except for the crying at every red light on the way back. I've done this exact thing, right? Many times. So I'm like, well, no wonder you hate quote unquote networking because you you do this annoying, painful, awkward thing only to be bombarded with takers and then you rinse and repeat until you get sick of it and quit. Whereas for me, I really enjoy what you might call networking. And the reason is because I am flying to Costa Rica with a hundred entrepreneurs and it's going to be really amazing and curated by somebody who really makes sure that only non-annoying people get in and there's going to be activities and it's all designed to get us to hang out and talk in a way that's not interrupted by people's cell phones the whole time and emails. That's a totally different thing. Than, than the learning annex horror show meetup that we were just talking about. And so it's really important to go to only things that are curated. And I think I, I talked about this a long time ago with, I was like Tim Ferriss or something like that. And I think he put it in one of his books, which is go to the best event that you can afford. The reason is not because like, oh, people who have money are more important. Uh, that's That's sort of not the message I'm trying to get across here. The reason that I say that is because if you spend five grand, which I know not everyone can do, let's, let's call it 500 bucks instead, fine. If you spend that money to go to something, you're already cutting out a hell of a lot of the takers, generally speaking, if the event is curated. If it's just a ticket to like the latest scammy real estate investor conference, that's not going to do it. But if it's curated and it costs money, curated being not everybody who signs up can go because there's maybe an interview process or something, you're going to have better luck with an event like that, 
because curation is taking place. Yes, there are free events that are curated, but it's just usually not curated as well because the curator is not making any money doing it, which means they have less time and bandwidth to uh, to, to dedicate to that. Not always. Yeah, like I remember reading in, um, what's that? We had Alex Banyan on the podcast, The, the Third, Third Door, Door he wrote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about LA Biz Now and the Summit at Sea stuff. And, and I guess that's a very, I've never been to it, but I guess that's a very expensive and curated uh, conference. It so, is. Yeah. And that's like an example of that kind of, kind of networking. So that's a good example. Cause summit summit series, I went in 2010, which is like a really long time ago. Now they're like kids with learners permits that <laughs> were born then. Um, <laughs> but I went to that and it was really something you showed up and it was like these NFL players and these actresses and these entrepreneurs and these people were amazing. giving us talk on this and that, and it was small. And then they went through this this time period where they kind of let in anybody with a trust fund. And I remember a lot of my friends who went to those afterwards, they were like, oh, it's really gone downhill because now it's anybody who can afford a ticket can get in. And I think Elliot Bisnow, who's a real smart guy, saw that happen and he's like, we kind of have to clamp down on the, just because you have five Gs, you can come to Summit. And then they they tried to curate it more. And I think it it became even more interesting because- that's the problem with curation is like you have to say no to people. And sometimes those people are high quality and or wealthy and could pay you a lot of money. And it's really tempting for an event curator to make more money with the event. But the problem is when the curation level goes down because you're letting people buy access. Like you, let's say you and I go to mastermind talks. Let's say it becomes poorly curated. Now there's just a bunch of people who could afford the ticket there. They're going to bother us for things. They're going to want things from us, but we're not going to feel like they're on the same page as us. Right. Yeah, they're, they're, that's key. And, and since they paid, they might even be like, well, I need to get my ROI from this event. Whereas you and I might say, Hey, the ROI is just meeting these people that I haven't seen in a while or hanging out with other creators. That's the ROI for us. The ROI for some guy from a hedge fund is going to maybe be like, finding early stage investments or like keeping in contact with us in a way that we don't find a hedge fund might be a bad example, but they might bother us for something then drives us away. And then the next round, he has to make up for that loss of revenue by having more outside, less well curated people into the event. And you can see really good events go downhill simply because the curator decides to make money in the short term. And I think that happens to some events. So I know we're a little off topic here, but the point stands. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What about like in terms of, like for instance, you and I have met at this conference and we've also met via the podcast a couple times, but most of our interaction happens like this over yeah. you know, Zoom or Squadcast or whatever. Yeah. And yet- I consider you, you know, a friend and a connection and so on. Absolutely. But I've been to your house before. We've hung out at events before. Like I've met you at least half a dozen times in person for hours at a time. Yeah. So I wonder to some extent, like, like how many people you have you overall had on your podcast? I mean, I've had about like over a thousand people, maybe maybe about close to 1500 people on my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And what percentage of them do you think of as actual people you could call up on the phone and say, Hey, how's it going? Ooh, it's a small number because, and people will go, well, why aren't you drinking your own Kool-Aid then? If you're such a good networker, the reason is because, well, there's two things. One, if you do a podcast with the intention of making every guest, your friend, you're going to be sorely disappointed and, or your interviews are going to be really bad because sometimes I have to be like, isn't this not real science? And that's not a great way to like make friends with Malcolm Gladwell or something, right? Yeah. Like that's not, that's not good. Hey, Did you have Malcolm Gladwell on your podcast? I have. Yeah. And I have to, you know, and, and look, I like that guy. He's a really, really cool guy. But, uh-huh. and, and I bring it, I bring up that example because I've seen interviews with other folks, not Malcolm Gladwell necessarily, but people of that sort of caliber. And you can tell the host just really wants to be like their best friend after the interview. So all they do is fanboy the whole time, but it's not that interesting because yeah. you can't challenge anything. You don't challenge any thinking. You don't ask any hard questions. It's not good. And also, and yeah. another thing I noticed in podcasts is that many of the guests are trained friends, meaning yeah. they're really good at being your friend for an hour. Yeah, <laughs> that's so funny. And that's so true. Because they're on these podcasts or they're, or they're famous actors, in which case they're even like overwhelmingly trained to be yeah. a friend. And so you just can't tell anyway. So you can't get fooled by that in the interview. That's a really, really good point. Yeah, you can't tell. There's a lot of people that I keep in touch with that are from the show. I email former show guests probably every six months, every seven months, whatever, to see how they're doing. Most of them reply, which I think is good. That's a good sign. So they're in sort of my peripheral network, but I'm not going to call Admiral Stavridis and be like, hey, uh, let me swing by for some whiskey tonight. What do you think? You know, um, he did invite me to have a drink with him, which I thought was pretty cool. But I wouldn't just be like, hey, pop him. I'm hopping into Florida, wherever he's located. Like I wouldn't, I would not do that with most guests on the show, but that's okay. You know, having somebody, having somebody on the show and doing a good job with them as an interviewer that's good enough because now I've had people from Malcolm Gladwell's company and I've said, Hey, can I, I know you, he, Malcolm talked to this person. Would you mind introducing me? And he can do that because he'll go, Jordan Harbinger's not going to waste your time. He did a good job with Malcolm twice, three times, whatever it's been. And that's good. That's an example where you, you're so good at the ask mm. and then the connection of a connection. 
So those two techniques combined together. I will give you a tip for that. So one, a lot of people struggle with this because even if you're really, so where I mentioned at the top of the show was a lot of people are not good at, uh, at giving help to other people because it's out of sight, out of mind. So that's a problem. But once you get over that, let's say you're really helpful to other people all the time, people then go, oh, okay, but I need to make an ask. I don't really want to do that because it's awkward or I feel undeserving or what if they say, no, I'm going to feel bad about myself. Like there's a million reasons why people will, will not do it, but that then they're not working the other side of the equation, right? They're helping all these other people. They're never asking for something for themselves. So one of the training wheels that I give people in that situation is I say, okay, don't ask for any help for yourself. Ask for help for somebody that you like. So mm, that's a great idea. And the reason is because like, okay, James, maybe you'd never ask me for anything or maybe not me. Maybe you never asked somebody for anything, but what if your daughter needed something from that person, you'd probably call them in a second and be like, look, my daughter really, really, really wants to work at Microsoft. And I know you have family there or whatever you, cause now you're not asking for yourself. So all of the idea that I might reject that or have a, something to say, all that goes by the wayside because you would do anything for your kid. So right. it, it, it basically dials back the, uh, kind of intensity, the interaction. Right. So even if the, if the interaction is not so good, it doesn't necessarily long-term affect your your relationship. Exactly, because look, it dials the stakes up because it's somebody you love even more than yourself. Uh, in this case, your kids, um, yeah. if you're healthy, <laughs> right? And but it also dials down the idea that the rejection is going to mean anything because, like, say you ask me for uh, a seat at, on my cool yacht party that I'm going to have, right? And I go, no, I don't like your hair. James, you're not a real friend. You'd feel bad, okay? Probably. But if you're yeah. like, hey, can my daughter uh, get a letter of recommendation to the University of Michigan Law School? She's super smart and she's on the wait list and blah, blah, blah. You're not, if I say no, you're like, well, okay, that's fine. But, because uh, it's not, I'm not rejecting you. Uh, and I'm not really even rejecting your kid because she didn't ask me. You know, I, right, I'm doing it right. through you so you can shield her from that. So that's, but then also- And you have like, an easy out too, yeah. which is to say, hey- I don't know her. Yeah. Uh, perhaps if I had worked with her, you know, I have a policy. I have a rule. I only write letters of recommendation to people I've worked right. with for six months. So. so so, the stakes are so much lower. The rejection is so much lighter It's and less personal. The in and, and, Sorry, the stakes are so much higher uh, but the, for you, but they're lower for me. And the rejection is so much less personal uh, if I needed to do that. And so it's a, it's a good cheat. Because it's like a training wheel where you can do that. And then when, when you find out that 90% of the people you ask for help for your mom's computer or your daughter's letter of recommendation, when, when all those people say yes, you're like, what if I did ask for something for myself? That might not be so terrible after all. And then you do and you find out people can't wait to help you because they like you and it's fun. you know. And, that, and also the fact that they already responded to an ask right. makes them more well, liable. The same person. Yeah, the same yeah. person. Sure. Yeah, it ma makes the same person more likely to think to themselves, oh, I'm the type of person that responds to a Jordan Harbinger ask. Yeah. So he's asking again for something. Oh, yeah, sure. We're, we're, we're doing that. And, you know, it's interesting because obviously the reason asking is hard is because it's a little stressful. And there is science behind the fact that if you're stressed about something happening to yourself, the best one of the ways to relieve that stress is to help others. So you're along the way of doing these this training wheel style of asking, you're helping other people too. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think helping other people is, there's plenty of science that shows that, like you said, it makes you feel better about yourself, but also I think it's one of those happiness hacks that people are always sort of harping on about. Helping other people is one of those things that at no matter what your income level is, it makes you happier low or high. And also it's, I just read this the other day and I'm sort of like forgetting the major concepts here, but helping other people, one of the things that kind of no matter where you are in the socioeconomic scale makes you feel better and objectively also makes that other person feel better because you're helping them. Right. And, and so it's like a, an easy win-win. There's something else that I'm forgetting from that particular science. I think I've even spoke to Andrew Huberman about something like this on, on the podcast where from a neuroscience point of view, you know, the hunter in the tribe is not hunting for just himself. Right, yeah, that makes sense. So 
when he finds the thing that he's hunting for, the dopamine levels shoot up because he's satisfying the entire tribe, which means his status in the tribe might go up. And so he feels good. That makes sense. Yeah, that actually makes sense. From an evolutionary psychology perspective, that does make sense. The point is that when you help other people, it makes you feel better. It strengthens your bond with that person and also makes them feel good about their relationship with you. And so what's great about helping other people is it's way more scalable than people think. One of the other issues is, I mentioned this at the top of the show as well, that young people go, I don't have anything that I can do to help someone like, I don't know, Mark Cuban. And they're kind of right, but not really. They're thinking, oh, I don't have any money and I don't have any real connections, so what can I do? The thing is, what they have is time. So it's not unheard of, especially in today's day and age, for a 24, 25-year-old kid to be pretty damn well-versed in something like AI, right? Because they can yeah. absorb all that stuff in their free time and it changes so quickly that if they're on top of the latest thing, it doesn't matter if Mark Cuban got briefed by the CEO of OpenAI six months ago. All his knowledge is now kind of outdated, out the window, too shallow for the latest iteration. So you can really be helpful to somebody like that, but also not just in a specific knowledge area, but in your connections. So yeah, Mark Cuban doesn't need you to get an investment in because he's got the checkbook. But what if you're the person who curates all of your graduate students in your engineering class and finds out which ones are really smart, well-versed in the latest, I don't know, let's, again, AI, why not? And now you're doing a job interview. You're going through your job interviews. So you're that student and you go into your job interview at Google and they say, they won't tell you this, but let's say it's between you and another person. Great. You both interview well. You've got decent grades. Fine. And then you tell them, hey, by the way, I'm the president of our, our artificial intelligence society at the University of Michigan School of Computer Engineering or whatever. You just became a zillion times more valuable because now if they hire you, you're far more likely to recruit from that student organization, which has the exact people that they need because uh, you're yeah. in that organization and you're the founder of that organization, whatever it is. So now you're, your leg up against the other person who is maybe slightly more technically qualified than you is enormous. Your advantage is enormous because you have other people that they are trying to hire and theoretically you're in a position that is respected by those same people. So yeah, your network that's, that's, that's really interesting. is a major value add. So, so you don't have to have money or connections uh, or connections to famous people or whatever it is. You just have to be somebody that other people trust, at, even at your same level or below. There are a lot of people that get hired at firms that are presidents or, or not even. They're in a student organization and they hire them. Maybe it's even a fraternity. They hire them because they know that they'll be able to recruit other financial professionals from that same fraternity at that same school. And they want an edge in doing that. They want to recruit more finance dorks from Michigan. So they get the frat boy finance dork from Michigan because he knows all the, he knows the next three years of upcoming finance yeah. dorks at Michigan. So that's a recruiting edge. They send him back to the school. They fly him around. He's in, in the interviews, uh, round twos or whatever they're called. You know, it's a massive advantage. And that guy didn't do anything but drink beer with those kids every week for a year and a half or whatever. That's it. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. 
make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. And it's also fascinating that what you said, young people have time and there's lots mm -hmm. of ways they can invest that time. So like when I, and I wasn't even this, this young actually, but I was switching careers and I was getting into the investing space. And, and this was like in 2002, 2003, starting my hedge fund. And I did have a lot of time on my hands. And so what I did was I did an insane amount of research about the people I would email. So if someone got a PhD, 40 years earlier, I would read the PhD and find something that excited me and, and send an email, discuss, not even mentioning my hedge fund, just saying, hey, read your PhD. I have, what do you think of this, this, this? Did you look at this, this, this? I have some questions, blah, blah, blah. And people almost always responded to things like that. Like if they, if you show, you know, real sincere interest in something, even the more obscure, the better, but in something that they did, I think that's a, a powerful tool and you can only do that with time. Yeah, I, you know, you're right. Th that's the one thing that, of course, young people don't necessarily realize because they've never been busy like an adult and had all that responsibility. Mm. But I think about that all the time. I think about all the time I spent... I, I didn't even watch that much TV as a young adult. I did it when I was a kid. But I, I think of all the time that I spent learning, this this probably sounds terrible, but going to like classes like anthropology or going to college at all, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm like... What a waste. It is. And, and I'm not saying nobody should ever go to college. I don't, like, I hate when people put words in my mouth like that on social media. I'm not saying that. I, I you know, look, I went to a trade school. I went to law school, right? And, and that ended up being fine. I, you know, I, I wouldn't do it again. But um, I think think that, that that's okay. But what if there's all these people that write, I can't afford to go to college. I would have to have these jobs. I'm going to be in debt and da, da, da. And I go, what do you want to do? And they're like, well, I would love to. And they fill in the blank. And it's so much, it's so funny how many other way more fun alternative paths you can give someone. One person wanted to join an international organization. They were like, which school should I go to? And how do I afford it? And I said, don't even do that. Go to China for a year then go to Taiwan for a year and just master Mandarin, like fluent office work level Mandarin, and then go get an internship at this UN organization 
they'd probably love to have you at that point. Then call this NGO, which is way more picky, and go, hi, I'm fluent in French, English, Mandarin, and I just got it done with the job at the UN. They're going to hire you over the person that is an English lit major, can't find their way out of a paper bag, uh, can't work in another country because they only speak English and has $168,000 worth of debt. So they can't take the salary that's being offered anyway. Right. You have- yeah. It's, it's such a good point. Like in, in a career setting, when was the last time someone asked you what college you went to? And by career setting, I mean like a conference, a podcast, never any type of business interaction. Like when was the last, Oh, like in a year, when was the last time someone asked you what college you went uh, to? In a year? Zero. I mean, look, the the last time it happened... No, no, I mean, I mean, what year was the last oh, year? yeah, like 2003 when I was sitting in a job interview at a law firm. Uh, and the yeah, reason 2003 they, is probably the same for me. And they, they didn't even have to ask because they were on campus giving the interviews, so they knew already. But it was <laughs> like, yes, you had to have a law degree to be a lawyer. Who knew? But nobody before that was like, well, did you go to a top... 50 undergrad school or did you go to a local community college? Nobody has ever given so much as half a shit about that. Maybe when they saw the resume they did, but I would bet that back then that wasn't as important. And I think now it's so much less important. I think colleges would love to convince you that it matters life and death, what, what school you went to. Now I think people are just wanting to hire the person who can respond to their email with the fewest spelling errors in in less than six days. Right. It's like, I would gladly hire somebody who went to a local community college, but was responsive and professional than a person who graduated from Yale and has their, their nose firmly planted up whatever ass and can't respond on time and acts like they're doing me a favor whenever they return a phone call. You know, I, not that that's all Yale people, but like, I would just rather hire the person who can learn on the job. Most colleges are not showing you, and that includes law school, they're not showing you how to do the job anyway. You learn on the job. All you need to do is show me that you can do that before you get hired. That's it. Yeah, that's why it's good advice. Like experience is far more important than class, how many hours you sat in a classroom. Look, and so, like if you're look, if you're trying to get an engineering job, get an engineering degree. If you're trying to get a law job, you need a law degree. If you're trying to get a job at the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission or whatever, if that's even a or c- c- commission on refugees, don't don't look for the degree that's going to help you do that necessarily. Yeah. Or like you mentioned AI earlier. What does it matter now to anybody? If, if you got an AI, a degree in AI a year ago, you're so far out of the game. Right. You know, if you haven't done AI in the past year then it's it's useless. Yeah, you're you're better off being like a data entry person at OpenAI than you are getting yeah. a four-year degree in AI theoretical something something from MIT. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So so what in terms of like catching up, what has been going on? Your podcast doing well? Podcast yeah, the podcast is doing pretty well. I actually since I have two little kids, I spend a lot of time with them, so I'm done at 5 p.m. pretty much every day. I play with my kids for half hour, hour every single morning. They're so little. I've, you know, you never hear anybody say, I wish I didn't spend as much time with my kids when they were little as I have. (laughs) That's never, nobody ever says that. And and you do hear a lot like, man, it passed by so fast. Yes. I I, I didn't even see that coming. Yeah. And everyone told me that. They're like, they're only little for such a short time. And I was like, that's true. And it's the best time when they're little and all this stuff. So I was like, you know, I will regret it if I spend this time trying to hack the YouTube algorithm or not hack, but crack the YouTube algorithm. That's even if I end up being the next Joe Rogan on YouTube, it it wouldn't be worth missing my kids as toddlers because they're not going to care when they're teenage. They're not teenagers aren't going to give a crap if they're flying in your dad's, their dad's private jet because you're still their dad and you're a total loser, right? Because they're 13. So like, what's the point in trying to get to that level instead of just hanging out with them while they really want to play with you, you know, and there's, there's nothing better than playing Duplo in the living room and just not worrying about it. So I've been working a lot less and trying to worry a lot less about that stuff. And it's, it's aided by the fact that the advertising market really sucks right now anyways. So then the more you work now, you almost don't even, the, the rewards almost aren't even showing up right now just because the advertising market is so low. So it's one of those times where, I'm experimenting more. So it's like, let's do an email newsletter and and see if that takes off. If it does, cool. If it doesn't, whatever. 
and it, I'm just doing fewer shows. I still do three, two to three episodes a week, but I'm just not stressing myself out trying to put out content. What, what kind of experiments have you seen working? So I would think an email newsletter would do really good for you. Yeah, I, 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 that starts like next week. It's all drafted, ready. They're doing crap like making sure email deliverability is on and, you know, all those So fun. you're not using like Substack or something like that? I'm using ConvertKit. So okay. yeah, it's, but they, they have to make sure that like the domain is validated with DMARC and SPF and nobody knows what that means, but it's basically like making sure that people can't spoof your email address. Yeah. Um, so they're doing that. And then the other thing that I'm doing is I'm letting our YouTube team just mess around because I heard from a lot of big YouTubers that once you get into a rhythm and the algorithm likes you, you basically have to do the same thing over and over and over and over again until the algorithm spits you out and then you got to experiment and find it again. So what you don't want to do is do something and then the algorithm likes you and then you're like, cool, let's try this other experiment. It's like, no, no, no. Once it works, you have to keep doing it or you you get, you fall off the 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 track that you're carving for yourself. So I'm letting my YouTube team just do all kinds of weird stuff, like mashups and different types of experiments uh, what, because what now's format, the time. What, what format seems to shine? Have you found it? Have you found any kind of magic button yet? Yeah. So, so some of the stuff that's doing really well is taking three different guests that have really radical, radically different opinions on something. So it'll be like three radically different opinions on the economy. And it'll be like m clips of me with Ray Dalio clips of me with, um, uh, a general who talks a lot about China clips of this guy, Peter's, Peter's at Spalding. Yeah. Um, clips with Peter Zion. Who's like this, uh, global geopolitics analyst guy. So they'll run those together. And then those have done really well, or like three different perspectives on the Chinese communist party or something like that. No, it'll, it'll have those three guests. So somehow those have been doing really well. So that's been really cool to see because I don't primarily create for YouTube because I don't want the algorithm yeah. to tell me what I can create. Um, I, and that's what YouTube does, right? Um, well, you know, the problem with being a podcaster and not having a big YouTube channel is people, there's no numbers for podcasting that people could look right. up, but they see, oh, but he's only gotten 71 views on a YouTube video. Yeah. So it must not be very big, even though the audience, like if you, if you don't focus on YouTube, you're not going to have an audience. If you focus on podcasting, you're going to have an audience there, but not on YouTube. Right. It's, and it's frustrating. It is. Yeah. So that is frustrating. And I keep debating whether to put in the time because it takes time to figure out the YouTube thing. But like you said, there's, there's other things on the priority list that are higher. There are. So. And, and, and YouTube is, is dangerous because you could do the exact same thing as another YouTuber and you could even do it better, but the algorithm will go, nah, I like this guy's engagement better or the, you know, whatever it is. And they'll yeah. just push it. And you're like, what is happening? So a lot of the people that are helping me with my YouTube channel have huge YouTube channels themselves. And they're like, I don't understand why you only have, I think I have like 130,000 subscribers. How do you not have way more? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And they'll try everything. And they're just, they're banging their head against the wall. And they'll go, you know what did really well? Your video where this kooky guy talked about this. And I'm like, but I don't want all of my shows to be with kooky guys that are talking about why, you know, friggin' aliens built the pyramids. It's stupid. And so <laughs> if you get if you get obsessed with the YouTube algorithm, YouTube will tell you what to create. But the problem is the YouTube audience is not as sophisticated as the podcast audience by any measure. So the YouTube algorithm will tell you interview more guys that talk about why aliens built the pyramids. And now your show is all Scientology and aliens and pyramids and, you know, all these stupid things. And if you're interested in that, great. YouTube is your place. If you're not, you're now going to become a circus clown dancing for the algorithm gods. And that's all you're going to do. And you're going to start to hate what you create. Whereas with podcasting, I can interview uh, Kobe Bryant one week, uh, RIP. And it does X well, right, in podcasting. You know, X plus 10%. But then the next week I can interview a scientist nobody's ever heard of that talks about food and nutrition, or I can interview a gold smuggler or a counterfeiter that's not even giving out his name. And it'll get like 95% of the traffic that the Kobe Bryant interview yeah. got because it's podcasting and that's how it works. Yeah. No, that's the, that's the great thing about podcasting is that we did a lot of experimentation with, you know, what kind of guests do well just to see. And it just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Like you just have to be, you just have to be yourself and have fun with it. 
And like here, like we're just chatting like friends and, and it, it doesn't even, you know, whether you're again, Richard Branson or anybody, it's just, this, it's the same number of views. Exactly. It, it has to be consistent so that your audience sticks around, but you're not, most YouTube, as, as you probably know, YouTube, when you look at your views, it's like subscriber views, 2%, non-subscriber views, 97.8%, and then unknown is the rest or whatever. So you're like, wait a minute. If 98% of my views are coming from people who are not subscribed to the channel, that means the algorithm is feeding those people that interview. So it's not the same steady audience of people that know and love what you're creating every time. It's 97% different. And, and that's like the TikTok algorithm. Right. I mean, the TikTok algorithm, they don't even care about your subscribers. Right. They specifically are going to share videos that are going to do well with everyone. Right. Like they, I don't even know if they do anything with your subscribers. <laughs> yeah. I think the following thing is almost like a, it's like an award you give somebody who made a video you like is like, now you're a follower, but it's not necessarily going to show you more of that. Or maybe it will when you run out of other crap to watch on TikTok. But with podcasting, it's all that matters. So I, and, and people will go, oh, that doesn't make sense. Or you don't understand YouTube or you're salty about YouTube or whatever it is. And I've heard that before. And I, I, I understand why people think that, but here's the thing. The market has spoken. An advertiser on YouTube is paying the creator something like two to $3 CPM. An advertiser on a podcast is paying a creator something like $35 CPM, maybe 25. Right. So that just shows you that a YouTube view is about 10% the value of a podcast listen. Why is that? And that counts people who download the podcast and never listen to it. Whereas YouTube, a play is a play. That person was there for some point in time looking at that video while it was running. So think about that. If you just took the plays of a podcast, now your CPM is probably like $175. Yeah. And whereas on YouTube, it's like $2.75. So... That shows you how much more engaged somebody who listens to a podcaster is with advertising. And the re part of the reason for that, I, I'm theorizing here, but part of the reason for that is that person has heard you and I talk. If they're, let's say they listen to your show, let's say they've been a listener for a year and a half, not that long of a time for a podcast listener. They've heard you for hundreds of hours talk to different people. They know you better than many slash most of your friends actually do. Where, yeah, true. It's true. Whereas on YouTube, maybe there was a guy who recognized me at a restaurant the other day and he's like, you look familiar. Are we neighbors? And I was like, yeah, maybe. I mean, where do you live? Uh, around here, Saratoga, San Jose. I was like, oh yeah, me too. Probably just saw each other somewhere. And he goes, you were interviewing Peter Zion the other day. And I go, yeah. And he goes, I saw that on YouTube. And I go, oh, what other, what other episodes do you like? And he goes, oh no, I just, it just like played after something else I was watching. And I, that's why I recognize you. That guy will never come back to the, well, maybe he will now, but he wasn't going to subscribe. <laughs> he wasn't going to go download my audio podcast. It just showed up when he was, you know, falling asleep in his know, Xbox chair. A, a view on YouTube, they count something as a view if you listen for three seconds. So if you're watching a video for three seconds, that counts as a view. It's another reason why CPMs are so low. Is it even and, that and long? Views. Is it even three whole seconds? Or is it just like click and then it's, I, I don't even know. I don't know because, you know, now YouTube videos start playing if you just have your mouse over yeah. it. So I don't know. Maybe that counts as a view. And, you know, again, I don't know what kind of loyalty that engenders to the YouTuber. I don't know. It's, it, it's a con You know, the media landscape is always hard to figure it out. Is. as it, And as it also becomes more important to figure out because everybody now is basically has some context in social media where they have you you're, you're identified now by your your followers and your social media accounts and so on i'm not saying everybody and i'm not saying this is a technique for success but it's just like a natural thing that's happening like everybody became a writer as soon as you could write on medium yeah. and and linkedin and wherever so blogger you know yeah, so so it, you really have to kind of come to grips with what your relationship is with social media at, at some point. And particularly as a podcaster, because our jobs is to basically be out there and have people listen. Uh, it's, it's always an interesting thing. Everybody has a different approach to it. Yeah. The other problem with YouTube that I found, because I talk to a lot of YouTubers and I have a lot of big YouTuber friends who are, you know, have like a million plus subs or six million subs. You can't really take time off because if you do the algorithm punishes you, not at the levels where you and I are probably on YouTube, but if you're at the top, top, and you're like 
cranking out content two or three times a week, you can't just go back to your mom's house for Thanksgiving and Christmas and then come back in January because the algorithm does something where you're no longer as relevant as before and you have to work really hard to get back into it and it's like you might never get back on the on that wave that you were surfing. So I know people in their 20s that are YouTubers that haven't seen their mom in like seven years for a holiday unless she flies out to see them because they can't get away from their team and their studio because they have to like make jello prank videos. You know, it's interesting. I keep, I keep thinking I got to attack this YouTube thing, but I just don't have the energy for it at all. No, I know. Because like, it takes a lot of work too. It's so not much. just making videos. You got to have real production value and, oh, yeah. and you know, yeah. it's different than, I mean, even a podcast has to have real production value, but it not does. to the same extent YouTube has. Yeah, it's not even close. It's funny. I was just thinking about this earlier today because I'm interviewing this guy who was on this massive YouTube channel and he's like, I've got 4,000 Instagram followers in the last hour. And I was like, you're not going to get that when you come on my show. And he's like, oh, I don't care. But I looked at the channel and it's like, it's all filmed in a studio. They fly in every guest. They put them up in a hotel. They uh. make a trailer for the episode that probably costs a few thousand dollars. The Production quality is off the charts. Every time they do a video, they change the header banner of the YouTube channel to show the new video. They change the featured video to be that. They have an ad campaign that runs on it. They have like two Instagram channels that show clips of all of these and they post like eight times a day. And then there's also a podcast version of it. And I'm like, this is crazy amounts of work. There's probably like 15 people working full-time on this YouTube channel. And then I was like, okay, but this guy's probably making like 10 million bucks a year, right? Well, I look at the advertisers and I go, uh, okay, these are advertisers that are not high quality advertisers. I gotta be really careful because I don't want to out anybody or badmouth any companies. But let's just say one of them was like a tobacco, chewing tobacco company. And I was like, this is not an advertiser you have on your channel when you have a lot of other options for advertisers to have on your channel. The yeah. other one was like a vape company. Then there was another one that was like a supplement company that I know is everywhere. And, th but I thought like, oh, I expected there to be a better help ad and an insurance company ad and a mobile company ad, not low end sort of kind of icky ish advertisers. And you pick those when you can't get other advertisers. And I thought, who doesn't want to advertise when this thing's going to get like 1.5 million plays? And so it made me think like, is this guy might be making less money than a good podcast who, who sits around doing it in their underwear, releases the audio, makes sure that the volume levels are fine and that there's not like a dog barking in the background and that's it. Yeah, no, it's interesting because... Uh... And, and it's even worse in, in TikTok where it's very hard to monitor. Like all these people might have, get a hundred million views on TikTok and make zero dollars. So yeah, yeah. But it, it's interesting thing about it. I mean, I've tried TikTok, I've tried Instagram and I've, I have like bursts of success on each platform I try, but it's just so much work to really expend effort. And I, I do three pockets a week. I want to make these as quality as possible. So that right there yeah. is, is the job. Yeah, I, I actually decided early not to do TikTok because, well, one, if there's such thing as shadow ban where they block certain content without telling you, then I'm definitely going to be on that because I talk about China and the Communist Party all the time and it's owned by a Chinese company. So I'm like, there's no way I'm getting yeah. traction on TikTok. And even if I was, I could get, you know, I, all my work could go away in, in, with the click of a mouse from whoever's over there at ByteDance in Shanghai or Beijing, right? So no thanks. Yeah. The other thing is, I met people who had like 40 million followers on TikTok and I'm like, why are they doing a Patreon? Th and I'm like, aren't you making enough off TikTok? They're making $0 off TikTok. And I thought, holy crap, you got to get these followers from TikTok to go subscribe to something else. So they would come out with a podcast and they, it would just epically fail. They'd get like 8,000 plays. I'm thinking, how do you go from 40 million followers to 8,000? Yeah, so there's, there's really no loyalty in the audience. And it's funny though, because... One time someone said to me, hey, can you pay like this one TikToker with 20 million views? I'm like her manager. And if you pay me a, you know, a certain amount of money, she'll give you a shout out and, say, and tell everybody to go to your, your YouTube chat, your TikTok. And so I said, okay, mm -hmm. well, how much does it cost? And he said, I think it was $2,500. And this is a person that had literally 20 million followers on TikTok and <laughs> you know, millions yeah. of views on each video. And so I said, I don't know if it's going to work. I don't, can we do it once 
where I see what the result is and then I'm happy to do it 10 more times. And so this girl did it once and I don't even remember who she was, like some girl who had a TikTok with 40 million followers or 20 million followers. And all I got was I got a ton of messages from people saying like all misspellings and lowercase letters, like, did you take over so-and-so's account? Like, did you hack so-and-so's account? Like, give her back her account. Like, people were like obsessed with the fact that I stole this person's account somehow and put like some deep fake video of her recommending my, you know, TikTok channel. So it was just a weird, different type of audience. But Kooky. Jordan. Thanks so much for your time yeah. and helping us out with our Ask Altucher sub-series. It's always great to update with you and catch up. And one of these days, I really hope we get together in person again. Yes. Thank you very much, man. Good chatting with you. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jordan. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor.